Shalom, welcome to Tanakh study. This is Alex Israel from Alon Shvut. Delighted to be with you. And today we're going to be studying um, from Perak Tet, Pasuk Chet. And we're going to talk about the rainbow. Uh, we've already spoken about the way that um, the receding floodwaters resemble a recreation of the earth. We've also spoken about how just like Adam HaRishon was commanded, Puru be fruitful and multiply, and given his a food, only given a vegetarian diet. Now, um, God does the same thing with Noach, uh, telling him Puru and also telling him that now he is allowed to eat meat, but warning humankind and animal kind about the danger of uh, killing humans, not to eat blood, and warning about Eva Min Hachai. All of these things being very careful about the value of life, blood, indicating to us maybe a reflection of the sins that took place, the violence that took place, the Hamas that took place, which led to the flood. On the one hand, giving a concession that human beings can have flesh. On the other hand, having them understand one can kill animals, one cannot kill people, and even animals, one cannot do Eva Minachai, one cannot be cruel, inhumane to animals. However, God is not finished with um, reassuring Noah that the flood will not return. It's true he has promised um, Noah, but now he establishes a sign, and that sign is the rainbow. Uh, it's become such a familiar symbol in our world. Today, maybe it's used as a sign of diversity, but um, we are going to look at it in its context, in its biblical context. I will maybe before reading the text, uh, pose two questions. What is the symbolism of the rainbow? Rainbow is very beautiful. Um, what is its symbolism though? What does it mean? And I'll say more than that. The, sim the, the rainbow seems to be a natural phenomena. Uh, it, doesn't, it, it happens when the sun rays hit the uh, droplets, the water droplets in the, in the atmosphere. So uh, is this a sign which was initiated at this point? Having said that, we are going to read through the verses and I'm going to, before we even begin, point out that there's some very special features about this paragraph that we're going to read. Milim um, manchot, key words, um, two words repeat seven times. The word Brit, covenant, and the word Eretz, um, both seven times. In other words, this is the covenant to reassure the earth that the earth will remain intact. A third key word, which comes seven times in the previous paragraph, um, and this is the word nefesh, indicating life. So we have a, a reassurance there will be a covenant made between God and man, which will preserve nefesh, life, and it will also ensure that the Eretz will not again be violated by the water. Um, God says to Noach and his sons who are with him, I'm setting up my covenant with you, and all of your offspring after you, and um, with every living creature that is with you, whether it is the birds, the cattle, and the beast of the earth, 
itchem, which are with you, mikol everything that came out of the teva, all of the beasts of the earth. Notice again, eretz, eretz. Vakimotiet britietchem, I'm setting up my covenant. A covenant is a contract, a contract between two parties. I'm setting up my covenant, my contract with you. That never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. There never again will be a confusion, a flood, which will destroy all the arets, all the land. So that's the covenant. The covenant is that all humanity will not be cut off. Um, and there never again will be a flood. Here is the sign of the covenant. We've made a contract, but here is the sign. That I'm going to set between me and you. And between all of all living beasts, forever and ever. I have put my bow in the cloud. It will be a sign. When the clouds cloud over the earth uh, then the bow will become visible um, in the in the in, in the clouds um, I'll remember my covenant I'll remember my covenant between you and you and between me and you and between all of the uh, all flesh and there will not be and once again water will not be a flood to destroy all flesh the bow will be in the in the cloud and it will be there uh, to as a everlasting covenant between all living things or flesh which is on the arets in the land we see a lot of emphasis here what exactly as i said is the symbol of the um of the rainbow uh some see take the word keshet and it reminds us that the word keshet is actually an implement of war uh the keshet is a is a bow and we look at it as being a rainbow, but uh, it actually is an, an implement of war and even used by God. For example, we see in Eicha, Darach Oyev, that God pulled back his bow like an enemy. In other words, God has arrows and God can pull back his bow. Uh, in this case, if uh, some people have said that the, the Ramban, for example, says that the rainbow if you pull back the bow, usually you pull back the bow, the string is on the bow, and the arrows are shot against the ark. And uh, therefore, the way that it will, uh, the way it works here is that you, um, the, the bow is like as if God is turning the arrows back on himself. And if he is, um, the way that the, 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 the bow works is that God is sort of directing the arrow towards him as if signing saying that he is um, putting down the gun so to speak others have said that what is really being said here is that I notice the language here is time after time after time God doesn't simply say 
my rainbow, but he says, The Keshet will be the Anan. Over and over, the, rain, the bow will be in the cloud. A cloud is usually something which conceals. In fact, in Tanakh, it certainly conceals. The cloud conceals the Mishkan. The cloud conceals Mount Sinai. The cloud of the Ketoret conceals the presence of God in the Mishkan. A cloud conceals. And therefore, if a Keshet is an implement of war, then putting it in the Anan is like God sheathing his sword. He's putting his sword back into its, his, his weapon back into its holster, as if to say, uh, cease fire. And so that might explain some of the symbolism here. But I'd like to uh, say two further pieces. One is a remarkably creative uh, reflection by Rav Yaakov Meidan, uh, who's known, I think, for his creativity. And he said uh, the following. I don't know if any of you have visited um, Niagara Falls, but if you visit Niagara Falls, I'm not sure what time of day you see this. I know that I was there in the afternoon, uh, one afternoon in, in, in March, and as I came towards the falls, you see an unbelievable rainbow above the falls. You see all the vapour coming up from the falls, and the angle of the sun creates this fabulous rainbow, sometimes not one, but two, above the, uh, above the falls. And Rob Maidan wanted to imagine that what we're actually seeing here is imagine the whole world even though the world has dried out there's still a lot of water which has to drain and there are these incredible waterfalls all over the place because the water is still draining from high places to low places it's it's come off the earth and the earth has dried out but there is still a huge amount of drainage that needs to be done and therefore these rainbows are a sign that i will continue to drain the world and the reason why this is so attractive is because we're we're very puzzled were there no rainbows before uh, the flood? The rainbows, which, as I said before, are a natural phenomena. Um, did they not exist prior to the marble? What does he mean? I've given this rainbow. It's just it's just a natural thing. For Rav Meidan, it's beautifully explained because this is not any rainbow. This is a rainbow which is coming out of the, the cloud of vapor of the waters which are draining off the earth. It's creative. Um, I'm not sure it's convincing, but um, I think the nicest explanation is, is this. Indeed, as Nachmanides says, as the Ramban says, the rainbow has existed since the beginning of the world, but now it takes on added significance. And what is this significance? I want to recall, um, before the floodwaters even began, a line which we focused on a couple of classes ago, when... Noach was told to take all the animals into the Teva. God said, Vahakimoti et briti itach. And we discussed what was that Brit, what was that covenant. Some explained that the food will not rot. Others explained that the animals will, will manage to live for a year in the Teva. But we brought the explanation that what was Vahakimoti et briti itach is that indeed through you, Noach, I will re establish the laws of nature. What better way? In other words, what I'm saying is the covenant which Noah was promised before the flood was that nature would not end. Noah going into this capsule was worried that he was the, the world was going to be destroyed and who knew whether he would survive. God said, You can go reassured into the Teva. I'm not going to destroy the world as you know it. And now 
God is coming back after the Mabul and saying, I'm going to establish that covenant. In other words, I'm going to reinstate, as I am reinstating the, the forces of nature, here's my sign. Every time it clouds over, look at the rainbow and you will understand that the clouds are not going to be threatening. They're not going to be clouds of destruction. That the rainbow indeed gives us that sense that after the rain, there is brightness, there is sun. The sun is going to come out and um, the dark clouds are going to be uh, going to go away. And so he's saying that there is a symbol already embedded in nature, which is going to reinforce the sense that nature will continue in the way that it has until now. I think that's a lovely understanding linking the Hakimoti et Briti here in chapter 9 with the Hakimoti et Briti in Perak Vav, Pasuk Yudchet, the notion of the restoring of the laws of nature. We're now going to move on to the next episode, which is the final episode in Noah's life. And I have to say it is deeply disturbing. Let's read the passage and see what we can make of it. The sons of Noah who emerged out of the ark, who came out of the teva, were Shem v'cham v'yafet, v'cham hu avi Kanaan. Cham was the father of Canaan. Notice that emphasis. Already we've been told that Cham is the father of Canaan. Why is that relevant? Shloshet ele b'nei Noach. These three are the b'nei Noach. Ume'ele nafsa kol ha'aretz. And from these spread out all of the world. I'm going to come back to these verses, but notice this very interesting introduction, introducing Shem Cham V'yafet, the footnote of Canaan, and these three, out of these three, spread the whole world. Vayachel Noach Ish Adama Vayita Karem. Noach, the man of the earth, uh, began, was the first one, or maybe began to plant a vineyard. Vayesh Min Hayayin. He drank the wine, Vayishkar, he got drunk, Vayitgal, Betochahalo, and he exposed himself inside his tent. Vayar Chamavi Kanan Aviv, Cham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness. He told his two brothers, Vayikach Shem Veyefet, the two brothers, Shem and Yefet, took etasimla, a, a, a blanket or a cloth, Vayasimwal Shechem Shnehem. They knew their father was naked in the tent. What did they do? They put it over their shoulders. They walked backwards. They covered their father's nakedness. Their face was backwards. And it says, They did not see their father's nakedness. Noach woke up from his wine. He knew what his youngest son had done cursed is Canaan notice the reinstatement of curses he will be a slave Ever Avadim, a slave of slaves to his brothers if he's cursed Canaan or, or if he's cursed Canaan he now says Baruch Hashem Elohei Shem Hashem, the God of shame should be blessed and Canaan will be a slave Yaft Elohim Yefet um, God will enlarge Yefet, and he will dwell in the tents of shame. But Canaan will be a slave. After the Mabul, 
Noach lived for another 300 years and 50 years. This is a repetition of the form generations which we saw in chapter 5. And it's almost embedding the whole story of the flood in the genealogy of chapter 5, closing the genealogy of chapter 5. The 10 generations from Adam to Noach, we're now closing that 10th generation with this formulaic conclusion of this paragraph. But of course, here we have just so many questions. Why is Noah drunk and naked in his tent? What does Ham do that is so bad to warrant an eternal status as a slave? Why is Ham's son, Kana, uncursed and not Ham himself? So many, so many questions. It's really a remarkable text and demands our, our attention. First thing I'd like to say is that this story in a sense, ends the Noach story. It's the final chapter of the Noach story, because of course it ends with Vayamot, and he died. But it also begins the next segment, because chapter 10 is going to be about how all of the world develops, separates out, each according to each according to their language, by their families, by their nations. And already we're giving a precursor to this with with uh, verse 19 these are the three sons of Noah and from here the land spread out indeed the next segment chapter 10 is described as the and this is already telling us this is like a link it's the last segment of the Noah story but it begins a segment about Shem, Ham and Yefet it's almost like a link in a chain it connects to the previous story and to the next story. But let's understand what's going on with Noah. Why is he getting drunk? What is happening here? Here we can talk about two possibilities. One relates to Noah as a sort of negative character. We have already spoken about the famous Midrash that Noah ish tzadik tamim hayabadoratav and Rashi compares him to Avraham and says, well, in his generation, he might have been a righteous man, the evil generation of the flood. However, in a generation like Abraham, he wouldn't have been so righteous. Uh, with with, uh, with Noach, it says, He walked with God. With Avraham, it says, Walk before me. Avraham was much greater than Noach. It's not only Noach who is compared to Avraham, but maybe even a more fascinating comparison is between Noah and Moshe. Uh, why do I say this? First of all, remember Noah and Moshe are the two individuals who maybe might be linked by 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights secluded from the world in a teva. 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai. I'll say more than that, of course. Both of them are saved by a teva. Um, Noah and Moshe also when he's put in the basket in the Nile by his mother. But maybe the most significant connection between the two is that both Noah and Moshe are given a specific offer. Noah is told, I'm going to destroy the whole world and you are going to start a new world. Well, wasn't Moshe given the same, um, the same offer? Moshe was told at the golden calf, I will destroy all the Jewish people and I will make you into a great nation. Of course, Moshe 
argued back and said, God, you can't do that. You've got a promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. You can't do that. What will the nations say? Moshe uses every tool at his disposal to defend the Jewish people, so much so that God responds in Vayinachem Hashem there in chapter 32 of Shemot. Vayinachem Hashem God decided not to bring the evil against his people. What about Noach? Noach never argues back. In fact, until this last bit of this chapter, until he talks to his own children, we don't hear a word from Noach. The silence is deafening. Noach doesn't talk to God. Even when he brings in sacrifice, he doesn't pray. He doesn't talk to his people. We see absolute silence. It's almost perplexing. Why does Noach not pray for all of the people who are going to die, similar to the way that Avram prays for Saddam, or the way that Moshe argues for the Jewish people, so much so that God, the same which indicated God not destroying the Jewish people, is actually the phrase used in chapter 6 to say that God will destroy the world. It's almost inviting Noah to speak up. And, of, and, and it's Chazal in Bereshit Rabbah who say, Noach began to plant a vine. They use the word Vayichel not to begin, but Nitchalel Chulin. He became Chol. He became profane. Um, why? They say, Noach starts off as an Ish Sadik, but he becomes an Ish Adama. Noach is going down. Moshe Mishinikra Ish Mitzri Nikra Isha Elohim. Moshe started off by calling an Egyptian man, Sipora calls him, but then at the end of the story he is called the Isha Elohim, the man of God. Moshe is in an upward trajectory, Noach is in a downward trajectory. This is a very damning statement about, about Noach. So maybe this is already a sign that Noach something goes awry after the flood. And we might even explain that Noah, seeing all the destruction, he simply has, a, you know, post-trauma in some sense. He doesn't want to continue. What does he do? He gets drunk. He just wants to go to the bottle and sees, despite all of God's, um, God's, God's reassurances, um, Noah just sees life as futile. I'll stress that God said to Noah, Purur of Uwame Loetaaretz. But Noah doesn't have any more children. This is even more accentuated when we remember the formula of chapter 5, which is, comes back as a refrain here at the end of chapter 9, and the phrase always used is, banim uvanot. They had sons and daughters. If God says to Noah explicitly, shouldn't he have more sons and daughters? Noah is not interested in the future. He's been he's shell-shocked by the marble and there is nothing that he can do to bring himself back to the normal orbit of things that is what is happening here possibly in this story in this case we see noach not as noach the tzaddik but noach ish adama not noach ish tzaddik but ish adama but there is another possible way of looking at it many people have pointed out and so did we that when God restores the world after the flood, he restores it day by day. First, the Spirit of God on the water, like day one. Then the tops of the hills are exposed, like day three. Then he sends out the birds, day five. The, the 
each stage of, of creation is is there. And of course, then God says, Puravu, like he did to Adam. So now what happens? Noah plants a vineyard. He plants a garden, we could, might say, Vayita Kerem, and now he drinks wine and is naked in the tent. Why naked? Noah is trying to, if Noah has gone through a recreation, Noah wants to get back to an earlier state of innocence when man was naked in the garden. He wants to go back to the Garden of Eden. This story is telling us that we cannot go back. We cannot go back to a pre-innocence. What we have to now do is build the world. Noah, you can't go back to a state of pre-knowledge. You have the knowledge. What you have to do is sober up and move ahead in order to create the world. However, Noah is incapable of doing it, and it is his sons who will do this. Um, what he can do is practice moral responsibility and guide his sons, and this is where he's going to reprimand and punish one of his sons, Arur Kanan, Ebed Avadim and praise and give indication of what is positive about shame and yefet. So let's, but let's try and understand why. First of all, why is Canaan singled out? And why is such a severe punishment given to Ham uh, or Canaan? After all, all he did was, he saw his father naked, he turned around to his brother and says, Hey, look, is that really so bad? We can, uh, the Midrash here takes things in a very, very severe direction which uh, people might not want to go in, but I will read it in a Midrashic sense. Uh, for example, the Midrash says uh, that there are two two possibilities of what they did. Uh, one is that Ham um, had sexual relations with Noah, and the other is that he castrated Noah. What do you, how do you understand this very strange Midrash, and where does it come from? I think the, the, these two midrashim come from a very interesting place because, of course, the text tells us that what did he do? It says, He saw his father's nakedness. Whenever you uncover your father's nakedness, and the brothers, of course, cover their father's nakedness, uncovering somebody's nakedness in the rest of the Torah is having sexual relations with them. More than that, it says, when Noah woke up, he knew He knew what his son had done to him, as if an act was actually done. Um, and, of course, there is a third matter, which is the, the severe punishment. And therefore, the, the commentaries who go in this direction want to claim that obviously something extreme had been done. Of course, they go in two directions. One is that Khan performs sexual relations on a vulnerable person. We'll come back to this. Um, essentially saying uh, we don't need to continue the world the world is all about just having pleasure um, the homosexual act being one that doesn't isn't productive isn't creative um, exploiting his father for sexual purposes maybe reminds us actually of the story of 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 Lot and his daughters and uh, maybe one story draws on the other the Midrash um, sort of reads the Lot story into this story and uh, but it would it would definitely indicate an atmosphere of, you know, uh, tomorrow we're going to die, eat, drink, and uh, do worse things because tomorrow we will die. 
even the explanation that he somehow castrated Noah goes back to this idea that Noah is not having children. The future is futile. But I have to say that me being attracted to Pshat, I, I, I don't think we need to go this far in order to explain this, um, this thing. I think we can understand that what really is happening is exactly what it says here. That Cham sees his father's nakedness and celebrates it and thinks it's a big a big joke and uh you know wants to use this as an opportunity for entertainment of some sort and that the sons realize this is their father and they should have respect and in i'm going to try and answer this together with the focus on Canaan. how does it work we're going to see as we get into chapter 10 i said this is a linkage parsha on the one hand, it's closing the Noah story, but it's also opening the story of how Shem, Ham, and Yafet become the major three lines of the future world. And in that regard, Ham is Avi Kanaan. And what is Kanaan? Of course, Kanaan is the, the land of Kanaan. We're going to see is seen by the Torah as a particularly perverse place. The Torah tells us, Do not follow the practices of neither Egypt nor the land of Canaan. And then gives an entire listing of all the sexual um, malpractices, sexual abominations that go on there and says, These are what the nations of Canaan do and that's why I'm driving them out before you. From the Torah's perspective, maybe the Torah is trying to see the roots of this sexual perversity already in the father of this family, in Ham, and particularly in Canaan. And the emphasis on Canaan will explain that this is what we see as the culture of Canaan, the Canaanite lands where, for example, the major god is Baal, um, which was well known not only for being a... A, a god of rain but a fertility god with all sorts of sexual practices which associate with it. Um, Ham as we shall see later on in the story is also the father of Egypt and Canaan and, and, and Cush and if you remember the rest of the book of Bereshit we see that almost every time that people from the line of shame come into shame as in shame Ham and Yafet the line of shame come into contact with Canaanites or Egyptians, uh, the more powerful power then comes and takes advantage of them, sexually compromising them. What am I referring to? Sarah, Sarah Imenu, who goes down to Egypt and is taken by Pharaoh because she is a beautiful woman. Later on the story of Sodom, which tries to rape the anonymous guests in their midst. Um, we have Rivka taken by Avimelech. We have Dina, who is compromised by a uh, a Chivite. We have um, Yosef, who goes down to Egypt and is um, sexually assaulted by uh, Eshe Potiphar. And the Torah therefore perceives the line of Ham as sexually perverse. And it might be that this story is already trying to um, tell us the Torah with its heightened sensitivity to family and its allergy to sexual perversion it's, it's it's detesting of sexual perverse perversion especially when a powerful person takes uh exploits a vulnerable person 
Of course, there's nothing more vulnerable than being drunk and naked. This is the uh, sense that Canaan, and therefore, what does Noah say? That Canaan will be subservient to who? To shame and yefet. Here we already start being given a sense of who these people are. Baruch Hashem Elohei Shame. Shame is particularly associated with Hashem, Yudke Vavke. And along with him is Yefet, Yaft Elohim Yefet, Yefet will explain, Vishkon Bale Shame. It seems like the association is shame together with Yefet. However, Canaan should be subservient to them. Canaan almost seemed like a, a person who we don't trust to be on his own, needs to be supervised, needs to be occupied, needs to be given some meaningful activity because otherwise Cham will get into some into some deep trouble. So I hope this has gone some way to explaining this very difficult and strange, awkward parasha. But I think what we see here is the end of, of Noah. As I say, a, a particularly you know, embarrassing end for him and maybe hinting that even though Noah uh, did everything Hashem, he uses no initiative, he never speaks up, he never argues to the world, he doesn't even pray and uh, leaves the Teva as a broken man, adopting the bottle uh, simply in a state where either he's searching for an unreachable garden of Eden or simply... Um, you know, wasting his years away because he simply cannot cope with building a new world. We now see the difference between the two respectful sons, Shame and Yefet, as opposed to Cham, and which is already arousing certain themes which are going to carry on over the next chapter or two and throughout Sefer Breshit. Next time we will turn our attention to chapter 10, which is a story of the creation of the 70 nations, the descendants of Shame, Cham, and Yafet. Tune in then. Thank you very much for listening.